innovative, often duplicated. When enough people get on the trend, I elevate it. Make it way harder for them to follow what I take. It hard to swallow like a lozenger lodged in your trachea. Goodness gracious, bruh, I can never make this up. So just take your stuff, rake it up, and take the bus. Never fake the funk, you painted skunks. You played enough, I'm lifting bars to outer space, so the weight is up. Fight. Hey everyone, how's training? Yeah, for us too. COVID-19 has really thrown the entire jiu-jitsu world for a loop. I'm actually in the process right now of writing our own Academy Bellingham BJJ's reopening guidelines, which I'll share with folks once it's finally baked. I'm going to try to do a show on advice for best practices in terms of health and reopening as well. But while we're closed, it's time to turn to a very important and fun topic in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, which is the history of jiu-jitsu. It'll be an exciting summer, even if we're not getting to train as much as we want to train. Robert Drysdale's Closed Guard documentary is going to come out this summer. We're going to host Robert for another live stream chat. We did one earlier last month. And even when the gyms are closed, you can still learn about the folks that are responsible for bringing us this art we all love. We will have Robert Drysdale back on to talk about the film when it comes out, and I'm interviewing Tufi Kairus, who wrote an entire dissertation about the origins of Brazilian jiu-jitsu. You may have heard him on the show once or twice before, and I'm interviewing Tufi again in the next month. But today's show is with Dr. Wendy Rouse. Dr. Wendy Rouse is an associate professor of history at San Jose State University. Dr. Rouse's specialty in terms of academic history is what's called the progressive era in U.S. history from about 1850 until about 1920. As you'll hear her talk about in this podcast, Dr. Rouse has been training various martial arts since she was 10 years old, has been training jiu-jitsu for some of the past four years, and got very interested in jiu-jitsu's early times in America particularly about the role that President Roosevelt played in bringing jiu-jitsu to the United States. She has some really interesting details on that, as well as some materials that I'm going to post in the show notes so you can see some of the visuals that we talk about during this conversation. Dr. Rouse is also the author of a book, Her Own Hero, which is about the origins of the women's self-defense movement. We talk about that as well. We talk about how a country's martial arts history really mirrors that country's political history. And a lot of the issues that folks were dealing with around the turn of the century in America, we're still dealing with today. We also talk about one of my favorite topics in jiu-jitsu history, the suffragettes of the United Kingdom around the turn of the century. When women were seeking the right to vote and faced violence because of it, a woman named Edith Garrod trained an entire cadre of women to defend themselves using jiu-jitsu technique. It's one of my favorite parts of history, and after this show, I think it'll be one of your favorites as well. She's written books and papers about jiu-jitsu, and I can't wait for y'all to hear this conversation with Dr. Wendy Rouse. So, Dr. Wendy Rouse, you've been training martial arts in one form or another since you were about 10 years old, and you're also a historian. Um, so thank you so much for taking the time to be with me today. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for asking. How did you first get... So you've been doing martial arts since you were a kid, and so this is something that's always been interesting to you. How did you get interested in the progressive era of the United States, which I understand is from the 1850s to roughly 1920, and why did you decide to study that particular period? Well, I was actually a historian, you know, going to school for to study history. Uh, got my undergraduate degree in history and then my master's and my PhD in history. And I was just really interested in this time period, but specifically I was interested in immigration history. And I was looking at, like, family and childhood life during that time period. And I wasn't at all even thinking about 
studying martial arts, which is ironic because I had studied martial arts since I was 10. And I, I hadn't thought about the history of it beyond that like 1960s, 70s era of women studying martial arts. And so I, it, it never really dawned on me. So what's interesting to you about this particular period? You know, your book is about the origin of the women's self-defense movement. And when was that connection where you're like, well, I studied this period in history. And was there a particular precipitating incident in history or an incident in your life? Where you're like, oh, wow, of course, this, this is a connection for my, my interests. Yeah, so when I was writing my dissertation, which was on immigration in San Francisco at the turn of the century, I was scrolling through old newspapers, and I came across an image that is now the image on the book, Her Own Hero. And that that image is of a woman from this time period, a progressive era woman, um, using a palm hill strike on an attacker uh, on the street. And I was like, what? She's doing jujitsu. She's doing these self-defense techniques, these classic self-defense techniques. And like I said, I thought women really didn't start studying self-defense until the 60s and 70s. So I was shocked. So I, I clipped the article and then I started running a bunch of searches using different search terms to try to see what, what was happening here. Why is this woman studying jiu-jitsu in 1904? You know, what's going on? So I kind of put my own project aside for a little bit and just started researching. And it ended up developing into an article and then a book. But it took many years to just gather all of this evidence. So we'll talk about some of the articles that you've written in your book in a minute. But I'm, I'm, I'm curious, from wh- why do you think it's important that folk know about these particular origin stories? And cause I, I, have, I have an answer for why I'm, I'm interested in your work, but I'm curious what your answer would be. I think because it reverberates with us today for some of the same reasons why women study self-defense now, that these issues, especially um, with the Me Too movement and some of the other issues with uh, violence against women, have been around for a lot longer than we think, and that there's always been this need for women's self-defense. And so for me, that was really interesting to think about, well, why were women studying self-defense back then, and why is it still an issue today, and why are women still interested in it today? One of the things that you talk about in your talk at the uh, the California Historical Society is this notion of the shadowy stranger. And I think one of the things you, you've talked about in your research is that folks uh, who are marketing self-defense will market, well, you know, if you're attacked on a street by a masher, which isn't a term we really use anymore, but was used at the time, you got to be able to hit them with a palm heel strike to the face or throw them or whatever. But the, the reality of the statistics you talk about is that most violence comes from someone people know. And this is something that is an issue that you, that was existing in the progressive era, but is still existing today as well. Yeah, and in fact, you know, feminists and suffragists back then, they, they were bringing up this issue of violence against women. Um, and they were talking about how, you know, women are often told to rely on men, to rely on their husbands, to rely on their uncles, cousins, fathers to protect them. But they were bringing up the point that often this is where abuse happens is in the home. And so what are women supposed to do if their natural protector isn't protecting them? So they were actually, the more radical feminists were arguing for a massive kind of restructuring and discussion of violence against women and trying to advocate for laws and protections and things like that. Um, But they found that they received a lot of backlash when they talked about this issue, that uh, obviously they lost some support in some ways, from people who were advocating for women's right to vote, they, they kind of met a lot of opposition. So they started to back off and just focus on the vote and just talk about why women need the vote for their own political empowerment. But really, they wanted the vote to tackle some of these bigger issues. So that was one of the interesting things about the connection between the feminist suffrage movement and women's self-defense. 
And another connection is something you talk about in the book, which is the the training of suffrage advocates in jiu-jitsu and other martial arts. You, you talk about Edith Garrett, who is uh, the famous suffragette who knew jiu-jitsu in the cartoon. And I want to talk ab- about her specifically and then a couple of other folks that you mention as well. So um, for those of our listeners who may not be aware of who Edith Garrett was, and can you talk a little about her, about her training, and about what she did with suffragists like the Pankhursts? Sure, yeah. So so far we've kind of talked about violence in the home, but uh, suffragists found that even just out advocating for women's right to vote, that they were also facing violence. They were facing harassment and assault. And um, Edith Garrett was uh, from from England, from the UK. And in the UK, they were fighting for their right to vote just as they were here in the United States. And they found that they were often met by hecklers, people who uh, said verbal assaults at them, threw things at them, actually physically assaulted them, threw urine-soaked rags at them and rotten fruit, just horrible things. And then they also encountered police brutality. So they were arrested and they were often roughed up in the process of, of being arrested. And finally, they reached a boiling point where they were like, this just can't happen anymore. Um, and they were going through, they were not only being arrested, they were being rearrested and rearrested. And then they would go into prison and they would go on hunger strike to protest their conditions there. And then they would be force fed. So it was a very violent experience. Um, and so eventually they formed a bodyguard. Uh, that's what they called it, the bodyguard. And it was a group of women who trained in self-defense, who was trained in jiu-jitsu specifically under Edith Garrett, who was a jiu-jitsu expert. And she led these secret, not so secret at first, but they went underground when they were investigated by the government, um, these secret jiu-jitsu suffragette classes. This is one of the periods of history that fascinates me the most because you get into the dissemination of jujitsu throughout the world. And so, um, you know, Sadakazu Iunishi taught uh, Barton Wright, who was the guy who founded Bartitsu, who ended up uh, teaching Edith Garrett. And then, of course, she taught a whole generation of the bodyguard. One of the things you mentioned in your talk that I hadn't heard before is that there were a couple of Americans who actually went over to train with uh, the suffragists in the UK and Elsie Chap- Chapin, I think was one of them. Yeah. I don't know anything yeah. about these people. Can you tell me mm-hmm. about them? Zelly Emerson, Elsie Chapin, Chapin. I'm not sure how you pronounce her last name. Yeah, they went, they went to basically the, the British suffragettes would come to the United States and go on these speaking tours and talk about the conditions of women around the world. And especially in the UK, the fight for the vote. And they, uh, they elicited these quite a gathering of supporters, a large audience. And suffragettes here, many of them were just super excited and inspired by what was happening. And they would sometimes go back with them and be recruited into the British suffragette movement. So Zelie Emerson and Elsie Chapman both were recruited into the movement. And when they got over there, Zelie Emerson's a good example. She was... Um, she she was arrested several times. She had her head bashed in and fractured her skull at least two times. And eventually she got more and more militant, more and more committed to this idea that they needed to prepare to defend themselves. So she started ju- studying jujitsu along with the Pankhursts, um, and they really started to advocate for women need to be prepared to defend themselves. And they had literal battles with the police where the suffragettes fought back. I would imagine getting your skull cracked would convince you of the need for self-defense, particularly in those tumultuous times. So you mentioned the bodyguard, and these were folks that, as I understand it, you know, they were there to protect suffrage leaders like Emmeline Pankhurst, but they also had some pitched battles with the cops, some of which was more memorialized in 
and news reports of that era that I saw during your talk. Yeah, for sure. So the the job of the bodyguard was to protect the suffragette leaders um, because they would arrest them and then they'd go on hunger strike and then they'd force feed them and eventually they'd get so ill they were pretty much, you know, possibly going to pass away if they didn't uh, do something. So the government had to release them. So then they would get they would get better and then they would go and they would give speeches again but they could be rearrested. So the bodyguard was there to protect them from being rearrested. And the bodyguard would stand up on the stage or near the stage and, and be prepared to protect the person and guide them away from the police. And sometimes they even hid, disguised themselves. They would have people disguised as the Pankhursts so that they could try to dupe the police uh, into thinking that they're taking someone away who's not who they think they are. Um, but yeah, and there was a couple of times when the police rushed up on the stage to arrest the Pankhurst and the bodyguard rushed in and they just went back and forth with the police and, and they threw chairs at them. They threw flower pots at them. They started, uh, some of them carried clubs and some of the suffragettes and they started using the clubs against the police, knocking the police in the head or trying to knock their helmets off or trying to trip them and shove them. So they literally did whatever they could to prevent the leaders from being arrested. It's hard to imagine that this was just a hundred years ago. And I think people sometimes, you know, one of the things that fascinates me the most about all of this to talk about a little, some of your your other work is how a society's martial arts development sort of mirrors and is affected by its social development as well. And there are many reasons one trains martial arts to, you know, if you are, engaged in pitched battles, you need to be able to defend yourself. But there are also, of course, other aspects of you know, personal growth, empowerment, things of that nature. And one of the things that, that I, I was taken with in, in your talk is the way that media and politicians would portray suffragettes, and both because they wanted the vote and because they were training, and they were portrayed as sort of mannish, right? And the, the playing with, you know, uh, and I, you know, I don't want to, you'll, you'll talk about this a lot more articulated than I have, but it's a way of like how this stuff became, or maybe it was always gendered, but, but was, gen, was the, the, how gender was written in the media at that time. Yeah. The w- women who advocated for the vote, um, even before any kind of jujitsu self-defense training, I mean, we go back to Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, they were described as mannish. Um, and the idea was any woman who wanted the same rights as men must want to be men, therefore they're mannish and uh, deviant and abnormal and something's wrong with them. And it was a way to attack them and to dismiss their claims and to say that they weren't like normal women. And so we shouldn't give them the vote uh, because they're, they're, they're deviant. Uh, so yeah, so that was often used as an attack against the suffragists. Yeah, it, it, it's sort of interesting. You still see even that that sort of rhetoric and those sort of attitudes today in, in, in a lot of respects. And one of the, the things that I think that martial arts training and jiu-jitsu specifically does really well is it sort of provides a sort of, you know, not, nothing is an across-the-board empowerment, but something that helps transcend or, like, transform those notions into, like, you know, people can express and perform their genders in many different ways that doesn't have to be traditionally patriarchal or, tra- or in, in, in that sort of sense. Yeah, and these suffragists that studied jujitsu and self defense, or just the feminists in general from this era, they they were pushing back against that notion, those gendered notions of what a woman could be, be and what a woman could do. And so there was also this whole idea that women at this time shouldn't engage in physical fitness, that it was dangerous. And then that slowly started to change. And they're like, well, you can engage in certain types of physical fitness. There's certain types of games and tennis and golfing are okay, but maybe not boxing. And so the women who actually took up boxing in 1904 
I mean, that's huge because they're saying, no, we can do this. We can physically do this. We're capable of it. So even if they weren't out there advocating for suffrage or articulating the needs of or the, the views of the feminist movement, they are in and of themselves challenging, challenging these gendered notions of what femininity means. One of the my favorite guests I've ever had on the podcast is, is Leka Vieira, who was the first woman to win the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu World Championship at Black Belt. And she describes when she was training, and this would have been not even in the progressive era, this would have been in the, in the, 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 the 70s and 80s, that she'd be the only woman in a room of 40 sweaty, muscular fighters. And to you just to, to like live your life in that way is, I think, itself an act of not necessarily even defiance, but like strength and, and you know... Uh, uh, I mean, I'm impressed by it is what I'm saying, I guess. Yeah, no, and they, I'm impressed by the women then, too. I mean, they were empowering themselves in this physical way and a way that was totally counter to what society viewed as normal for women, and they were they were beasting it. <laughs> Absolutely, and, like, I mean, even today when you see women MMA fighters face some of these same sort of ridicule and stereotypes 120 years later, and now you think about how hard it, it must have been to be the first woman to walk into a boxing gym in 1904. Um and of course, these types of gender issues, and we can return to this stuff later, but I wanted to, I think this is a good opportunity to segue for how gender issues, you know, affect, don't just affect women, right? In that your article about, your article called Jiu-Jitsuing Uncle Sam, you talk about President Roosevelt and his training of jiu-jitsu and how jiu-jitsu was um, sort of portrayed in some ways as feminized in the media. And uh, like this, which is also an issue we continue to deal with today. So um, can you maybe summarize that article for, for folks? Sure, yeah. When jiu-jitsu was first introduced to the United States, there was a lot of pushback against it. Um, it was seen as the unmanly art. So boxing was the symbolic, most manliest of arts that you could study in Western, especially U.S. culture at the time. If you were a boxer, you were like the embodiment of manhood, right, of manliness. Um, and so when jujitsu comes along and it turns out to be effective, uh, boxers are somewhat defensive and they're like, well, it's not very manly though, right? It's not very, um, fair. It's not fair fighting. It's dirty fighting. And part of this, ha- there's this racialized element to it. It comes from the East. It comes from Japan. It's, uh, and, and the Japanese at the time in the United States were designated as the other, there was the yellow peril, this fear that Japanese were going to take over the world, that the Japanese were going to come to the United States. And, and so there was a lot of racial anxiety associated with that. Um, and so that coupled with the fear over, over boxing and the unmanliness of, of um, what, what does it mean if a boxer is defeated by a jujitsu person? You know, what does that suggest about American manliness? And uh, all of that comes into play here. It's fascinating stuff because it's a pattern that we see repeated over and over where a new art is introduced. Someone's like, well, that can't be as effective as my traditional art, boxing. And then it turns out that jiu-jitsu does beat boxing, by, by and large. And then they have to come up with maybe some other what I would call excuses. Like, well, yes, but it's not manly. and Or it's not fair. And as you mentioned, race plays a role here as well. Where it's like the, you, you quote in your article several contemporaneous news reports where people are like, but these are just tricks. They're wily and, and which is kind of a strange thing anyway, in that if like all that we're concerned about is martial effectiveness, what does it matter if I tricked you? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. 
I think Teddy, yeah. Teddy Roosevelt, president of the United States at the time, he's the one that kind of paved the way for it to come into the United States and to be more accepted because he was a boxer and he was really interested in jujitsu. And he, and he invited jujitsu instructors to the White House to demonstrate techniques. And when the jujitsu instructors were able to submit him and, you know, take, take him down and, and show him the tech, techniques, he was like, wow, this is effective. And so he, he was convinced that, okay, boxing may be the superior art, but the reality is, is that if American men don't learn this, how will they be able to compete? So he actually advocated that the army should hire these jujitsu instructors to teach the techniques along with boxing and wrestling so that they could be more effective fighters. And that's part of why it became so popular in the U.S. in 1904 this is one of the things where I think there's two ways you can respond to a, to a challenge. You can either respond in an unproductive way by making excuses, by sort of denigrating it as this is the thing that others do. Or you can say, well, there's some merit to this and we should incorporate it and we should learn from it, which is, as you mentioned, what President Roosevelt did. And one thing I kept hearing in my head when I was reading your article about this jujitsu being all the grappling is this feminized martial art, not the manly arts of stand up. Like I, I imagine modern UFC fights with fans shouting, stand them up, ref, whenever the fight goes to the ground. And so where does this notion come from in your mind th- that grappling is feminized? It comes from exactly that time period from back then. When Russia defeated, uh, or when Japan defeated Russia in the Russo-Japanese War, it was a big, like, scary warning to the Western world that an Asian country would be able to rise up and defeat a Western power. And what does that suggest about uh, American and European superiority? What does it suggest about American European manliness? And so this threat of the Japanese as a major military power, as, as soldiers, as fighters, kind of spreads and this conversation starts to, and this question in American men's minds is, are we the superior fighter? And so that's all about the anxiety there that's associated with jujitsu and submission fighting as opposed to striking. And so that all came into play at that time period. And we still see remnants of that even now with the discussion of jujitsu versus striking arts. We had Robert Drysdale, uh, the jujitsu world champion and historian on the podcast. And obviously there's I want to talk to you a little bit about definitions and how martial arts are defined in a second. And one thing Drysdale said that, that really stuck with me, and this is totally my experience as a jiu-jitsu person, is the good jiu-jitsu is the stuff that I know. The stuff that you know is the unfair, bad jiu-jitsu. Or the stuff that, like, and so if, if I prefer, for example, to grapple on the ground, well, I'm not going to worry too much about takedowns, throws, those other things. Whereas if someone is not as good on the ground, then, ah, that grappling on the ground, that's just... That's what girls do, <laughs> you know, and, and, and so, so that, that's more a statement. But one, one thing I would love to get your take on is that there are many, I would say, arts that are even encompassed within jiu-jitsu. Obviously, there are tons of other martial arts. But what we mean when we say a martial art, whether it be jiu-jitsu or karate, there's the technical components. But then there's also like the philosophical components, like what we hear when we hear jiu-jitsu. And you get out of this a little bit in your work about you know, how jiu-jitsu is perceived. But I'm curious about, do you think that that's a meaningful distinction? Uh, how does that land with you? Uh, martial art versus... Well, like, what, if I say jiu-jitsu, like, to some folks, that includes everything that's been happening in Japan since the samurai were doing it. And to some folks, it, 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 they hear it as, okay, it's a sport. Um, and I think that's true of, of most martial arts, right? Like, in that 
And there's a reason that we needed the Marquis of Queensbury rules, like cause people couldn't agree on what boxing was. And for me, I'm not necessarily articulating this as well as I want, but I, I think that the way societies, like social politics helps us define what the good martial art is from my perspective. Yeah, no, when I was training, I, I'm just going to tap into my training here because I, um, I don't know how to contextualize it historically, but when I was training, there was a, an emphasis on the traditional martial art versus that other stuff, which is just di- divorced of the art aspect, divorced of the philosophy, divorced of the, the honorable notions or whatever, right? And so um, there was a, a heavy emphasis on the traditional art art of it. Um, and less on the techniques. And what I find is with the self-defense training, you often have to focus on the technique. And a lot of the art does go out the window because you're focusing on, okay, I'm going to see this a student for maybe five, ten sessions, and then they're going to be gone. So a lot of the art kind of disappears, and it's like, let's just focus on the key techniques you need to know to protect yourself. No, that makes perfect sense. And like, And I think this is true in terms of modern sport fighting as well in that there are many reasons that people train, right? At its most base level, people that train self-defense, train to survive, to protect themselves. But a lot of techniques that are really effective in martial arts are not entertaining to watch and or are not, you know, they, they don't comport with the idea of an honorable philosophy. And so, like, like the modern UFC is just like competitive boxing in that it has rounds, there are all these rules. Um, and whereas in a, in a self-defense situation, none of that stuff is operative. And if you have me in a bad position at, at four minutes and 59 seconds, nobody's coming to save me if it's a self-defense situation as opposed to the ref coming in. Yeah, it's, it's a totally different world, the self-defense versus the art aspect of it. And I think, too, that they recognize that at that time period in, in the early uh, 20th century that they've even just not even the competition too that these women were coming in they didn't necessarily want to compete although there were some that did um, so they did kind of boil it down to the basics and try to focus on what would be most effective for them one of the I'm not sure if this is outside of the scope of your research but it was in your talk so I wanted to talk about it you play a video in your talk with the historical society of a martial artist Mae Whitley who's throwing a dude around showing all these techniques I think that was from 1933 and uh, and uh, like I'm I'm curious like did you do research into her life or like was that just a cool a fun video to show? I show it because it's a hilarious video to show, and I show it because of the the funny way that she genders the martial arts right because she's dressed in her her dress and her proper middle class outfit and she's throwing this guy around and I find that general audiences especially that have no martial art training are just so impressed that this woman is capable of doing this and and yet she's retaining her femininity as she goes through but it's it's funny because she does she puts on makeup at the end uh, and it just shows you especially into the 1930s where any kind of mannishness was definitely discouraged there was a backlash against the suffrage movement and against the feminist movement Movement. And women were actually encouraged to be more feminine and less physically active. So she really is in the 30s standing out even more in some ways than her suffragette ancestors, because there she is of demonstrating this, these techniques and still trying to conform to society's notions of what a woman should be. We'll post that video in the comments to this podcast because it really is an, an outstanding video and uh, not just for the techniques, which are, and I think a lot of jujitsu people that watch it will say, wow, we still do that stuff today. The, the yeah. same, but also, as you mentioned, the sort of gender performance aspect of it where she's all done up in makeup, throws the guy, puts her makeup back on. It's like, I clutch my handbag close so he can't get at it. It was pretty, uh, yeah, really fun stuff and really fascinating stuff. 
Uh, the classics never go out of style, I guess, in terms of the classic throws. That's throws. right. I love to play that video for martial artists because they just, they go nuts talking about the technique. So let's talk a little bit about immigration because that is a piece of, of you know, you know, you mentioned that that was your, your, your academic focal point and it's very present in your Jiu-Jitsu and Uncle Sam article because the, the, the notion of this thing that comes from the East, right? It is the other. It is not what we do. And how did, like, you know, this is what fascinates me about incorporating, to me, Jiu-Jitsu is an art that is always looking for the best techniques to incorporate in it. It's a malleable art. That's, that's how I, how I see it. But people are resistant to change. Like humans generally are resistant to change. And so you mentioned that Roosevelt had a pretty pivotal role that like sort of giving the ominous dominus to jujitsu as no, we need to learn this stuff. I'm curious about what you think the factors were in making this, this art that was an otherized art, this Asian art, what were, what were some of the factors in making it acceptable to the Americans that then began to train it? Yeah, I mean, it was pretty contentious in those early years about whether or not you should even train in it and what does it represent that it's coming here because of the yellow peril fear. This When, when Japan defeated Russia, that was a big fear. But even before that, uh, Japanese immigrants arriving in America were facing a lot of anti-Asian sentiment. There were actually movements here in California to try to stop um, Japanese immigrants from coming in. Uh, that's a, the precursor to that was the anti-Chinese movement. There was a lot of anti-Asian hostility. There were our first anti-immigrant laws were targeting Chinese immigrants and then later Japanese immigrants. Uh, San Francisco tried to segregate Asian immigrants from the school system and for the children of Asian immigrants. And so this was a hugely contentious issue, just the presence of Asian Americans in, in the West uh, Western states especially. So when Japanese jiu-jitsu becomes this hot thing among some um, martial artists and, or boxers that want to train in jiu-jitsu, it's, it's heavily contested and it's heavily infused with all these racialized notions of masculinity. And so, as I said, I think at first uh, Jeff, or Roosevelt was a little thrown off by this idea that something could be better than boxing or at least equivalent to boxing. And so he wanted to see for himself. And so when he invites these jiu-jitsu instructors to come to the White House, they literally put down mattresses on the floor. And he says, show me what you got. And he's, and he's just so impressed by it. He's like, I know that Western men are strong and, you know, these Asian men are smaller and, and everything, but these techniques are working. Like, and so he's convinced that American men need to learn it. He's all about trying to keep the U.S. as the number one military power. You know, that's crucial. And so if we're going to compete, we have to learn these techniques and incorporate them into the military curriculum. So let's return briefly to self-defense uh, for women in, in, in a moment, because you mentioned that the feminist movement had waves and continues to have waves, as well as, you know, the self-defense movement comes in waves as well. And one of the the things that you, you talk about in your talk is that initially when uh, women's self-defense is out there, there is this sort of notion that we are defending ourselves against shadowy strangers. And, but there are some, even at the time, maybe the more radical sentiments uh, you tell me, but like some folks in that first wave are saying, no, we are trying to raise issues about intimate partner violence, about family violence, about these other things that are actually statistically way more likely to occur. And in your talk at the California Historical Society, you actually go back and research all of these 
cases and find that the overwhelming majority are not stranger violence, even then. Yeah, exactly. So women in the present and in the past, um, the vast majority of women who face any kind of violence or harassment, it comes from someone they know at work, in the home, something like that. And self-defense instructors know this. Uh, you know, people trained in this know this. But the problem is, is that it's not popular to talk about for obvious reasons. And the feminists, the suffragists at the time, they knew that as well. They knew that every time they talked about this discussion, uh, this uh, topic of, of family violence, it shut down the conversation about women's rights. So I think it was much easier to talk about violence on the street, violence from a stranger, because everybody hated the stranger, right? Everybody can agree, oh, that guy's a bad guy, that guy that hides in the bushes and jumps out and attacks women. So it became a subject of general conversation that women were harassed on the streets because they were. I mean, statistically, not as often as in other places, but that was an issue. Like street harassment was and is an issue. And so they started talking about this and they found that people were listening, that people were interested in this. So they would write into the newspaper columns and say, you know, there's this problem in downtown with men saying things, inappropriate things to women or with men touching us on the subway or whatever, like they would raise these issues. And they found that the police started to get concerned about it, that the courts started to say, okay, well, we'll, we'll issue fines and we'll try to stop this. And so this idea of the masher being a threat was generally pretty acceptable, especially if the masher, if the shadowy stranger was racialized as an other, as someone, maybe a black man who was going to rape a white woman or a Asian immigrant who was uh, going to attack a child or something, or someone uh, Southern and Eastern European, like an Italian immigrant who was maybe going to kidnap a woman and force her into a sex trafficking ring. Those were the shadowy strangers. So even though in the vast majority of the cases, the mashers, the, the sexual assailants or the harassers were predominantly, they were white men. Um, they were racialized in the newspapers as these shadowy strangers, these others, these immigrants that are a threat to the main population. And these examples you cite, they're actual examples that you cite in your work of like, these are the others that were used. And it's, it's weird to see, I mean, it's, it's not, I mean, weird's not the right word. It's disconcerting to see how some of these same tropes still play into us today. I mean, to, to a certain extent, it's understandable in the sense that um, everything gets a little weird when money gets involved. And so it's far easier, I think, to market a self-defense service against, oh, this stranger that you don't know, that you suspect is different than you, as opposed to your uncle. You should defend yourself against your uncle. That's uncomfortable, even if it is more statistically, it's uncomfortable, it's not as scary, even if it's more statistically likely to actually be a threat. Right, it is. And it's hard for self-defense instructors, as you said, like, that's a totally different type of self-defense class. That's a totally different, and that has, you have to have specialized training and everything else. So even today, self-defense instructors find it easier to talk about the shadowy stranger, but they have to beware of racializing uh, the shadowy stranger of overemphasizing that as a threat. And sometimes with feminist self-defense classes today, they often talk about the multiple sources of violence against women. And they often talk about a broader set of tools for self-defense that aren't just about physical techniques because physical techniques you may not be able to use against a family member or something like that. So it's like they talk about the psychological and the, the verbal and all of the boundary setting and everything that you have to do in a self-defense situation. 
Yeah, you know, I, I always tell everybody, I hope you never have to use this stuff outside of the gym in that, uh, you know, and one of the things that in your talk at, at the Cal- California State Historical Society, you have a self-defense organization presenting and they talk about something I think that is super important, which is situational awareness and distance management and just kind of being aware of where exits are about being able to project your voice and be aware to threats, which is, you know, it's not as visceral as as the self-defense where you get to throw somebody and then do your makeup but it but it's it's more important and more and 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 like one of a line that my students hear me say far too much is don't get into fights 10,000 things can happen in a fight 9,999 of them are bad so you know avoiding it is the best situation solution i think in terms of gender and the martial arts what do people not think about that they should think about oh that's a good question I think, and this is just going to be based off of my own experience, and sometimes when I go into a a martial art class or a self-defense class, um, sometimes, or even just a a dojo in general that's a traditional uh, dojo, um, sometimes there's a a sense of toxic masculinity, and I'm sure, I don't know if you've done any shows on that or talked about that, um, but it can create a really hostile environment to women, and not just women, to everyone. For, for men and women, it can be a hostile environment. And so I think that schools really need to work on that. Um, because I, I, I was surprised, you know, I had studied traditional martial arts, and, and in the last few years I've dabbled in a lot of different things. And I'm, I'm surprised at how prevalent it still is, even in our modern society. So I would, I would think that that's something to really work on uh, for schools to really think about that and what does that mean and what does that look like to create a, a welcome space for women to continue to want to train. And sometimes it's not, it's not blatant, but it's there. And it's there enough that women sometimes feel uncomfortable training or men feel uncomfortable training or LGBTQ plus people feel. So I think it's really important to be aware of that and to, to think about inclusivity and how do, you, how do you create a dojo that is the type of school that everyone's going to want to come to and train in and, and feel empowered by. Yeah, I think that's an incredibly important point. I mean, I, I believe that jujitsu is for everyone, and it's easy to say that. It's harder to act like it, but that's why it's really important for us to make sure that we act like it. Yes, exactly. Let me just say, I've had a blast talking to you. This is awesome, and thank you so much for giving me some of your time. Is there anything else that you want the listeners to know? Oh, if you're interested in empowerment self-defense, if any women are interested in empowerment self-defense classes, there is a website online. I can send you the link to that that is... Specifically, instructors that are um, accredited, that are that are credentialed, so to speak, in empowerment and self-defense that focuses on these larger issues of violence against women. Uh, Dr. Rouse, thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah, thank you. If you're interested in the links to any of the materials we talk about, the images, the video, Dr. Rouse's book, Dr. Rouse's article, those are all going to be in the show notes for this episode, so do check those out. My thanks to Dr. Wendy Rouse for a really interesting conversation. And hey, folks, hang in there. COVID-19 isn't going to be around forever. We will rebuild. And when I have my reopening plan done, you're welcome to check it out once it's ready for prime time. This is Dirty White Belt Radio. My name is Jeff. Hit me up at jeff at dirtywhitebelt.com if you want to talk more. And stay safe out there. (laughs) 